The Old Testament reading today is from Numbers 27. Then the daughters of Zelophehad came forward. Zelophehad was the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Manasite clans. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Zirta. Tirza, pardon. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died from his own sin, for he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Silophahad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father onto them. You shall also say to the Israelites, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. For it shall be for the Israelites a statute and ordinance, as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused. But later, he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on this story out of the book of Numbers, that you would give us imagination to hear it, ears to hear, and thoughts to apprehend what you're saying to your church today. Help us to know how we might be a community and individuals who follow Jesus and inhabit these words. So meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, last week I mentioned uh, something that Wes Granberg Michelson had written on the topic of public virtue and politics, and I think it bears 
on the text this morning as well. And so I'm going to just remind you a little bit of what he was saying. He was thinking about this question of how might we engage politics or really, I think, any human circumstance or endeavor that we engage in differently because of our life with God, right? So he says, when our engagement in politics is rooted in our participation in the Trinitarian flow of God's love revealed in Jesus, we are no longer guided or constrained by what we think is politically possible, but are compelled by what we know is most real. And he's speaking of the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ the love that you and I are invited to become participants in by the Spirit now in the context of our own lives. Now, the story that we just read is a beautiful story out of Israel's transition into the next generation. Remember, the old and former generation is passing away because of judgments and their life of steady complaint. In other words, their inability to imagine life in the land as God might imagine it uh, from this stance of faith. Um, And this is a beautiful story, right? As we look into the next generation, and particularly as we think about the daughters of Zelophehad, right, who had passed away with this first generation, but leaving no male heir. And these women come asking what would have almost certainly sounded impossible given the laws of the day, given the inheritance laws and the structure that only allowed inheritance to be passed around or down patrilinearly, or that is, from father to son. They ask the impossible. They seek an amendment of the politic of their day as an act of faith and imagination, seeking God's gracious yes. And I want to suggest that this is a great story for us because we live in a moment in which we're often caught up in our own narratives, our personal narratives. We're aware of ways in which we've experienced trauma or we've experienced some type of suffering personally in the context of our own life stories. And you know how the moment you begin to take a look at your life and you're, you're, you're bogged down in the pain of loss and suffering, whatever that is, whether it's big T trauma or little T trauma or even littler T trauma, you know the constraints of your story upon your present life. Or whether we sort of cast our glance away from ourselves for a moment into our social relationships, interior to a family or interior to a church community or interior to uh, the city or neighborhood councils or your activity in the workplace or we think about what it means to be sort of members of the United States of America, citizens of this country, right? That so often our imagination is constrained by the losses that we've experienced and not opened up to what God might invite us to hope for because of his gracious presence. And this story, I think, invites us to remember his gracious presence as we imagine our future personally and collectively. So two things, faithful imagination and God's gracious yes over our lives and our requests. So first, faithful imagination. So we've seen, right, as we've sort of traveled on this wilderness journey with Israel, right, this first generation, we have seen many an individual and group sort of rise up at the tent of meeting, right, to challenge Moses on some matter that disappoints them. Sometimes it's food. uh, Sometimes it's unhappiness about the diversity of food or the lack of diversity of the, the culinary cuisine. Or sometimes it's about the need of water. Or sometimes it's just their frustrations with Moses's leadership or Aaron's leadership. 
And almost always those times of complaint have been driven by an experience of fear or a fear about the future. In other words, they're bogged down in loss. And no matter how often God has sort of sought to expand their imagination for something more because he's with them, they don't see it. But here, something different happens. These five daughters show up at the tent of meeting with a suit, with a case, with a a complaint, if you will, in a legal sense. They want to challenge the law of the land, right? And and now they are the remaining daughters of the household of Zelophehad, uh, who died without any male heirs, without sons. And so given the patrilineal practice around inheritance in which land is simply passed down father to son, what that would have meant is that his identity within the clan of Manasseh would have been just evaporated into the clan itself. In other words, he's not remembered. Uh, And so what the daughters seek to have is a remembrance of their father's clan, of his name inside of this clan and this identity in the new land. And they themselves desire to be the inheritors, and they desire to be those who caretake the inheritance. So they meet Moses at the tent of meeting, requesting that their father's name be included in the apportionment of land. Um, And you can immediately imagine how easily their coming could have been just like that of the previous generation. They could simply be looking at this space of loss or this experience of loss and sort of think about it just interpersonally or it's internal to their own lives. In other words, they could just simply say, well, there's some inequality here, or there's gender inequality, or there's economic inequality here that's not being recognized. They could just sort of land inside of the complaint itself and just hang out there. The first generation lacked imagination for how God met them in their needs or met them in their experiences of loss along the wilderness journey. But that's not how these women show up. They show up in contrast, they seem to be driven by vision and imagination of what can be, not by what it is, the limitations of what is currently present in their cultural situation or their political situation, the legal situation. And the difference is an awareness of God's presence. They've shown up at the tent of meeting seeking for the Lord to speak into this problem. They come as a matter of faith, I think. They want God to engage. David Stubbs in his commentary on the book of Numbers says that there are two laws that are at conflict with one another interior to this moment. It's the law on the one hand that would apportion land around an equitable distribution of land that was based on the size of your clan and based on the situation of economic need. In other words, there was equity that was in view. But on the other hand, there are these inheritance laws that pass land only through the male heir. And it doesn't account for a household that is left only with female heirs. How do you resolve this conflict? What is more primary, the patriarchal practice of the land or God's desire for an equitable distribution of land, a provision for his people in the future? In the absence of sons, the family name would just simply disappear and evaporate into the land of promise. The inheritance laws of Israel were inadequate to the world that God was actually inviting them into. And these women seem to get that. They seem to understand that. 
When I read this or think about it, it's not dissimilar from the arguments that arise in the context of the civil rights movement of the 60s in the United States. In Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, he imagines a far greater application of democratic freedoms that are envisioned in the Declaration of Independence than the law of the land or the cultural practices of land currently provided. What was politically possible versus the greater application of an ideal of freedom, democratic freedom. Martin Luther King Jr. was driven by a far greater view of humanity than even the privileged white culture of his day could imagine or want for itself or anyone. In a very similar way, the imagination of these women is not constrained by the political realities of their day, but rather by the heart of God, rather by the promises of God, rather by the grace of God's nearness to bring his kingdom. Faithful imagination for God's future. How might God be inviting us, you individually, us collectively, right, into a different way of approaching all of those things that bog us down personally or culturally, collectively? How might he be inviting us to open up our imagination rather than close it down because of all of the ways in which you and I have experienced loss personally or the losses that we're aware of interior to our own society? What about God's gracious yes? It's interesting. Zelophehad died with the first generation, not as a part of Korah's rebellion, where it notes, right? So he wasn't, he wasn't sort of killed off or dying in that moment of plague. He wasn't, um, we don't know when he died. We don't know the exact context of his death, but the daughters confess that their father was a part of a generation and a collective that had sinned. And so wasn't included in this sort of transitional space into the new land. But the daughters ask that their father's household not be blotted out because of his sins. And God says, yes, they are right in their request. So just take stock of that moment at the tent of meeting for just a moment. If you can sort of put yourself in the context of such patriarchal society, right, or a place where they've asked the impossible, right, put yourself in their shoes at the tent of meeting and you hear God's yes to your impossible request. What begins to run through your mind, right? This is an amazing moment of God's yes over their request. It opens up their own imagination and maybe even our own to a grace that is greater than our sin, greater than the stories that have previously shaped us. I'm used to, as a pastor, thinking about these kinds of things in the context of just pastoral care and pastoral counseling. When someone comes to me and they're bogged down in the pain of their past, some part of suffering in their present. I'm used to encountering individuals and I'm used to frankly encountering myself when I feel so stuck and lost in the constraints of my imagination for any kind of transformation. These women are in that particular kind of a moment and yet God says to their request, yes. How does that liberate you? How does that free you? How does that awaken your imagination? Think about what it reveals to us about the kind of God that we've actually come to. So easily we think of God as restrictive and anxious about our own behavior or moral development or goodness, or we expect that when we encounter God that his word over us is no. 
Do you ever feel that way? That if you were to ask something transformative of God, that he would just look at you and say, you don't deserve that. Most of us get stuck in that space with God. And the beautiful, remarkable piece of this particular story is that God says yes over their lives and over their requests. And it becomes a lasting ordinance that's passed down through Israel. In other words, it's not just them as an isolated yes. It begins to be worked out institutionally in the society itself. It's a remarkable movement between personal lives and our collective life, between our personal experiences and things that actually get embedded institutionally and systemically in our cultural moment. What if the future that becomes institutionalized is characterized by God's Trinitarian and loving presence, his yes over our lives? That's the picture here. He is a God who delights in the surprise of our collaborative conversations. So when you think about gathering to a moment of prayer, whether that's in a Zoom prayer call or a, a, you know, a Zoom community group, or whether you're on a walk with a friend outside and you're talking to the Lord together, do you imagine that God actively listens to your request in order to say, yes, I grant you my kingdom? They're not limited here by the sins of their father, the story of his household. They're not limited by the sonless household of their father. Their future is bound up in their life with God who is graciously present to them. They bring the brokenness and loss of their lives into a faithful conversation with God, not angry or fearful complaint. And God graciously says yes. So the question when I read this text is like, how, how is God inviting you to bring your losses in this wilderness moment, however you've experienced them, into an active and collaborative conversation with him that his kingdom come, that his grace be shown to you in the midst of your loss, in the midst of your suffering, as we bring our losses into active, collaborative conversation with God. As we look up from our own personal experiences and you deal with our relational spaces of conflict or you look out beyond sort of individual experiences of relational conflict to the way these conflicts are institutionalized in our culture itself. As you think about the moment of racial reckoning that we're in, what would it look like if we approached all of these conversations from the space of God's gracious, yes, I will give you my kingdom, than getting lost in the fabric of all that has gone before that might close our imagination down and just imagine that what is possible is only based on the constraints of what has been or the suffering that has been. How would it change the story? How would it change the outcome? How would it change transformation? Jump over into the New Testament for just a moment. Our gospel reading takes us into this beautiful sort of parabolic sort of statement of Jesus in which a widow is speaking and requesting of, of an, a sort of a judge who has no fear of God, and yet he relents. And the whole point is to say, look, the Lord goes over and beyond what this judge did. He delights to say yes, but will the Son of Man find faith? In other words, will he find a community of people that are actively conversant with God about the losses of their world and their lives personally. Will we believe that he delights to say yes? 
There's a story in the Gospels that Mark, as Mark tells it in chapter 7, beginning around verse 28, 28, it's the story of the Syrophoenician woman. She's a Gentile woman, and she asked Jesus to deliver her daughter from an evil spirit. And it's a memorable story because of Jesus's harsh words, at least initially, to this woman. Jesus says that, it, that, that she should let the children eat first, that it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. And we read that, and you're just like, oh, what in the world is Jesus doing? That's such a harsh label. In the context of his day, it was a derogatory term for sure, and it was a common way of categorizing Gentile outsiders to the stigma of being an outsider. Jesus takes that language to himself here in this conversive moment. He uses the label that highlights the taken-for-granted constraints of his cultural moment, of the politics of the day that would only look on Gentiles as dogs. And the woman so beautifully interacts with Jesus in this moment. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Do you see that her imagination is not constrained by what was politically possible in her day and her moment? Her imagination, rather, is constrained by all that she's learning about who Jesus is as he reveals God and as he brings his kingdom into the space of our own world. She knows there is enough to go around. God is not a God of scarcity. He's a God of fullness, a God of abundance, a God who delights to give. And that's the basis upon her conversation that she uses sort of to sort of fill in her conversation with Jesus. Grace overflows the children's table, grace that overcomes the outsider status, grace that is greater than all of our sins. Jesus says of her that she had great faith and her daughter was healed in the moment. Faith. Her imagination open to the heart and the desire of God who in Jesus is reconciling the world to himself and us to one another. Christianity is all about reconciliation. It is all about tearing down the walls that we erect inside of our society and inside of our very selves to keep others out. It is an opening of the door that says, come in. Because God has graciously shown up in our world and he delights to give us the kingdom. So as we reflect on this story this morning in light of the person that's revealed in Jesus, of what we learn of God further in the person of Jesus, how is God inviting you like the daughters of Zelophehad or the Syrophoenician woman to open yourselves up to the goodness of God's presence in your life? right now in the midst of wilderness, right now in the midst of, as I said earlier, we're likely to enter further sort of lockdown type situations in which COVID continues to progress. It's not decreasing. And even though we're about to finish up, right, our series in the wilderness wanderings, the wilderness for us will continue longer. So how does God invite us in this space of loss, these abiding experiences of pain and suffering to open up to his goodness, to his gracious presence, and his desire to say yes to us? Will he find faith? 
when he returns? Will he find a church? Will he find individual followers of Jesus who are constantly bringing their losses, their burdens, their awareness of all of the places in their own lives personally, in our community life, in our national life, in our world life, before God in conversation and saying, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord delights over you, friends. You are his beloved. His favor rests upon you. May God give us grace to speak to him in light of his good presence and his love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.